Blog Talk Radio. Women have the power to transform this world. We can end crime and violence if we all agree to do one thing. Share. Let's share our wisdom, share our time, share our talents, share our finances, but most of all, let's share our love. This is The Female Solution. Join me, Naima Latif, every morning, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, as we bring you stimulating discussions about the issues affecting our lives. If you're listening online at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the-female-solution, press the blue button that says follow and get our daily topics every morning directly to your email and your smartphone. Hi, I'm Naima Latif. Executive Producer of the Female Solution Radio Show. We invite you to call in 515-605-9325 and participate in this daily think tank as we examine the challenges we face and develop solutions that restore peace and harmony. We are global transformers, changing the world from the way it is to the way it should be. We are one. Wherever we live on this earth, We are one human family. On behalf of our team of radio hosts, I'd like to extend a greeting to all the members of our family, whenever and wherever you may be listening around the world. To our family in China, Ni Hao. In India, Namaste. In Japan, Konnichiwa. In Korea, Annyeonghaseyo. In Russia, Zrastutsye. In Germany, Guten Tag. In Poland, Dzień Dobry. In France, bonjour. In Spain, hola. In Italy, ciao. In Egypt, athen wasalan. In Ghana, akwaba. In Nigeria, peleo. In South Africa, saobona. In Senegal, nangadef. In Kenya, jambo. In Israel, shalom. In Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia, assalamu alaikum. Greetings. And may peace be upon you all. Tune in to Soulful Solutions with Dr. Debbie Green on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Central Standard Time and 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to hear great topics and stories on grief and turn it into victory. Join Dr. Debbie Green to listen to stories of triumph and learn how to overcome. You are not alone in your life, and there is hope in the darkest hour. This is your time to learn strategies and solutions to improve your life. It's your time. So join Dr. Debbie Green with Soulful Solutions and call in on Thursday at 7 a.m. Central Standard Time and 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at 515 605 9325 with comments and questions. Look to hear from you real soon. Sometimes we have to pull ourselves out of the scream of life and just be. Just just feel the presence of our being and keep on ourselves in a certain plateau. You know, so be encouraged today. Again, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Mr. Deirdre Sweet, that's on topic information 
is going to be uh, the veterans and mental illness and hearing a story, hearing his story, uh, so that we can have a, a better understanding of what is happening or what's going on. So, again, just get ready, you know, and just be aware. Just listen, and hopefully you will learn something, you know, that you didn't know before. And thank you so much for joining us on Facebook as well as YouTube and Blog Talk. Thank you so much. And continue to do your greater work, which is take care of yourself. I'm going to introduce our, our co-host, as always. Well, Grand Rising. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I am wonderful. I am wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was waiting. Um, we're going to introduce our guest for today. I'm just hoping he's going to uh, get his camera. Uh, I don't. I see him in the backstage, but I don't see the camera on. So okay. I did just add that he did say he received the link. So uh, again, this is a very delicate subject um, because mental illness is real. It is very, very, very real. And I thank you. I, I think you know what's amazing is that we we know it's there. I call it the, the invisible pandemic. <laughs> mm, the invisible pandemic. That yeah. That is real because, you know, we have had people who've had issues every single every single war, you know, veterans come back. And yes. the, the, the trauma that they've experienced is not really addressed. You know, we have the parades during Memorial Day and all of that. And there's Fourth of July celebrations, you know, with the, the 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 bombs bursting in air kind of thing with the fireworks, but we don't deal with the trauma of war. And every no, war has no. produced it, and that means, you know, we've got just in this nation, we've got what five major wars that that over the generations people have experienced. And there are certain behaviors that it creates when you have you have memories that profound that don't go away. So it, it is time we dealt with it from one who's gone through it. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. and I see it up close and personal. You know, every day uh, I witness PTSD uh, at the highest levels of this, you know severity. Um, how it can literally uh, change a person's life, um, and they can actually lose themselves. They can lose themselves. They can lose their awareness. They can they can lose so much. I've had um, one experience uh, that I want to uh, share really briefly before we bring our guests on. Um, I remember he was in his. Uh, it was like mid-70s, and, um, you know, when I first met him, he came in. He was very uh, unkept, uh, mm. disheveled, um, and his family, um, you know, brought him in for evaluation. And um, from, from that point on, you know, he was literally, as he told me, he said, I was still a POW. Wow. He said, even though I, I made it. 
out of it. He was in a special unit because he wore one of those purple hats, you know, purple hats, uh, uh, you know, giving the, the what they call the tokens of war, you know, mm-hmm. where they, and, oh, let me give you a, a cap to say so everybody can know that, you know, you did something, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and that was just, you know, one of those areas of his life that I call it the challenge journey because he said it was because he was part of a unit of 18 men and uh, three came back out of the 18 and the, out of those three, two committed suicide and he oh, wow. was the only living one out of that unit and he often asked himself, he had survivor's guilt, he yeah. said, I don't understand why I survived mm. and as I told him, I said, you know, well, you came to shore and you, you made it through, but you were still a POW in your mind. Yeah. So that's what PTSD do. It, it, PTSD, it, it puts you in a captive state of reoccurring. It's literally uh, punching the button to revolve the, the experience over and over and over again and until the subconscious becomes the conscious. Yeah. The subconscious becomes the conscious, and you know when I, the way I got his attention, I said no more POW, mm. and he looked up at me, and from that point, it was a, it was a group of, of men, and from that point on, uh, he he said he looked at me as different. He said no more POW. He said still a prisoner of war. I said. You're a prisoner of fear, sir. Ah, you you have moved beyond fear. the war. The prisoner of fear is, you know, is where it still consciously and subconsciously has you in captivity. So uh, I heard the stories. I heard the horrendous stories that most people wouldn't have listened to. But fast forward in the story, that gentleman is now, you know, not living in fear anymore. He doesn't. He's not afraid to come downstairs. He's not afraid to go to sleep and 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 wake up in nightmares or daymares, you know, because he has tackled his enemy and he has won and he has conquered. So he can enjoy his family. He can enjoy his grandchildren. And you know, it was an honor to do that. As I always told him, he said, he he. He said, you know fear, don't you? I said, yes, sir, I know it very well. Because mm. I, I had to deal with my own self. And fear, one of these things, because it literally is the corridors of the mind. And if it, when it gets in the heart, it starts to rest heart. Because think about it, fear is an emotion. Yeah. It, is not, it doesn't even exist on the outside world. Yeah. It's an emotion. And, and that motion then permeates through the mind. So we're going to learn a little more about that. So I want to introduce our guest, Mr. Deirdre Sweet. Wonderful. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Grand rising to you. Grand rising to you. Grand rising. Uh, Thank you for uh, allowing us to in your presence. <laughs> yes, my presence this morning. Um, but again, I, don't, I do not, uh, you know, we come minimize people's presence. You know, we didn't have to be here prior, 
knowledge of how we are present. You know, I tell you, we are present. We are present. Absolutely. Thank you again for being on the show. And, um, you know, I know this is a very sensitive subject to you, so we're going to get right in it. Um, and I just uh, want you to feel comfortable and speaking um, and uh, allow us just to know a little more about you. Uh, well, like I said, my name is Theodore Sweet. I go by Teddy most of the time, but uh, I come from a family of uh, military veteran. My parents have been married currently 62 years. Uh, I'm 56 years old, 57, July 25th, mm-hmm. 19, uh, 2023, God willing. But uh, I come from, like I said, a military background, very disciplined, uh, very rigorous discipline. That's one thing I, I, I can say, you know, no talking back. Uh, yes, sir. N- yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. Yes, no, sir. No, ma'am. But my military journey started at the age of 18. I joined the military in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And a lot of military brats, that's what they call the the, the, the children of uh, soldiers and so forth. They call our, they call our stuff brats. It's a, you know, uh, intimate term. But a lot of brats don't want to go into the military because they see it all their lives. And so what ended up happening, I joined the military because I didn't want to burden my parents with the cost of going to college and so forth. So I joined in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and I had a nine-year military career where I was stationed in Fort Drum, New York, Turkey, Greece, the Middle East, Italy, and then White Sands Missile Range. You know, I served in the first Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but my what ended up causing me to have a mental condition, which is claustrophobia and agoraphobia, didn't even happen in combat. It actually happened in Erzurum, Turkey, which is probably the most um, barren, most desolate uh, tour in the United States Army. It's very close to uh, Syria, and it's kind of like the Soviet Union's... uh, how, how how would I say it, uh, Siberia, if you want to look at it as, as a social equivalent. But what happened was my job in the military, I was a unit armor. I'm an individual that issues every soldier their weapons. And each unit has about three to 400 people. And so I was exempt from duty. I'm a weapons expert. I can put together, take apart an M16A1 rifle. For those civilian users, that's the weapon called the AR-15, which is really prevalent during a lot of these school shootings. That's like the weapon of choice. So that's the weapon that, you know, us in the U.S. military, especially the Army, use. And so the weapons are contained in a vault due to the fact that, you know, they have to be secure on the installation. And I got locked in that vault for a period of, probably between 10 to 20 minutes, but when you're in, it may seem like days when you're, you know, when you're in that kind of confinement. And the after effects of that was, I'm claustrophobic to this day. I spoke to Ms. Dr. Green offline. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say this personally and publicly for the first time. I'm going to defeat that fear of claustrophobia because the funny thing about it is, is that, in the military, you know, I was a parachutist. I jumped out of planes and so forth. I don't have any problems with doing that, but I have problems with being 
being in the elevator, you know, as funny as that might seem, or riding the metro. I can't be in confined confined places. And due to the, due to that due to that uh, confinement, my life has changed in you know in a whole bunch of different type of ways. After matriculating, after graduating, after finishing with a, um, uh, my military service, I went to New Mexico State University, got my bachelor's in criminal justice, and then immediately went to Vermont Law School and got my JD from Vermont Law School. And then my first job as a lawyer was adoption law clerk and a criminal law clerk in, in uh, the district court, superior court in Washington, D.C., I had a plethora of positions, HR director, D.C. Chamber of Commerce. I worked at U.S. Postal Service being a FOIA specialist. Um, HR directors uh, and EAP program director at D.C. Chamber of Commerce. And then I worked at the mayor's office, and this is where I think it goes in concert with what I'm doing right now. I was uh, the director of ex-offender affairs, and in that capacity, Every individual that came from what we call on paper, being on probation or parole, coming from prison and jail, which is a local confinement, these individuals would come to my office for services such as food services, uh, shelter. We call those twin brothers. You know, you can't eat if you can't sleep somewhere. And then employment services, uh, metro cards, a place to take a shower, a place to worship, and and so on. So I was basically, you know, dealing with society's downtrodden individuals that would have the scarlet letters, you know, almost like emblazoned on their head. And I found out that these were good people, you know, also all of us are God's children. But in this capacity, you would see a lot of individuals that would have – mental illness and sometimes individuals portray mental illness sometimes people look at it look at that as them portraying criminality but if they're they're actually different and in that capacity um, i worked for two and a half years and in my current capacity as a lawyer what i want to do is i, I want to give back because i know that a lot of times uh i think dr green you talked about it fear Fear is a very funny concept. Um, it's something that deals with your internal thinking. It may not even be manifested in person. So uh, what I plan on doing is, is going to 22 cities because that's the, that's, the, that's the number that is commonly used is for how many veterans per day commit suicide, taking their lives. A lot of times the figure is between 18 to 22. Department of Veterans Affairs would like to have a lower figure, but that figure is only just looking at the figures of individuals that are coming into their offices. It doesn't take into account individuals that are outside of their offices, which that is the more holistic number. And the project that I'm embarking on, what makes it a lot different is, is that I'm going to give a juxtaposition to church. In church, they'll tell you, you know, you'll get the the benefit of preaching and so forth if you come inside the doors. But if you look at the teachings of Jesus Christ and so forth, he didn't really preach in a church a lot of times. He preached on the streets. He preached where the people were, and that's what I plan on doing. You know, not 
analogizing myself to Jesus by no means. They say to be Christ-like, and I try to do that, you know, you know, failing miserably, but I try. But what I'm trying to do is going out into the streets and meeting people where they are, you know, and I think uh, an analogy there would be kind of like a church's outreach program and, you know, and seeing the veterans and, and letting them know that the services that they do have available to them because sometimes if you you know, some people are ignorant of things, and, and that's a word that's very controversial. A lot of times people think ignorant means stupid, but it's not. It just means you just don't know. And one of the reasons why, um, yeah, one of the reasons why this problem is so prevalent, I'm just going to tell you about facial hair. Right now I'm wearing a goatee. I want to tell you why that's important. It's not important that I'm wearing a goatee, but in the military, you're not allowed to wear facial hair and things of this nature. You, you know, it's a very rigid, disciplined environment. So one of the first things a person do when they get out of the military is they grow a beard, they grow facial hair, they get rid of their uniforms. They try to get any kind of connection to the Army or the Marines or the Air Force or the Navy. They try to break those connections. We get rid of our uniforms and so on and so forth. And one of the connections we break is that all-important one with Veterans Affairs where you can actually get your benefit. You don't want to have nothing to do with the military when you get out. I totally understand it. And so some of these individuals get out and they actually have an after effect. Like, like some of the female population, they might have MST, military sexual trauma, due to the fact that some of the men or women that were in charge of them took advantage of them. And then when they wanted to you know, reported to the chain of command, the abuser looks exactly like the person who you got to report it to, so it goes underreported. And a lot of times these issues can manifest later on to poor performance in life, homelessness, drug usage, and so forth. And you think that you're looking at a bad person, but if you know the real origin or what we will say ideology of this story, the person started off, as a good person, it's just that some person down the line took advantage of them. But not to be too, too verbose, but that's what the story is. It's basically uh, going out, you know, engaging about 30 to 40 to 50 veterans, apprising them of the services, giving them an email address and a cell phone. And then at a period of one year afterwards, I want to go ahead and I want to be able to call them or email them with the specific purpose of getting a return call, email, or text, letting them know that they are alive. And, and, and that I would consider a success. And I want to, you know, promote this as a best practice to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Because one thing I know about being in the government and the one reason why I was talking about my background, not to sound self-grandizing or anything is, is that I worked in the private sector, I worked in the government, I worked in the local government, federal government, I worked in the private, I mean in the nonprofit sector. And I know one thing, change in the government does never come from within the government. We've got to have individuals outside the government give the government their best track so forth. And I tell you, uh, I, don't, I, I know this program is going to be seen by, you know, some you know, many people, I hope, but there's a magazine in the military called PS Magazine. And it was a small 
kind of like a comic-type magazine, and it deals with preventive maintenance and services of vehicles, weapons, aircraft, and so on and so forth. But the civilian public also uh, got a copy of this magazine. The reason I say this is, is that you would have problems with Humvees, jets, and so forth, and some of the individuals recommending changes to the uh, aircraft, weaponry, and so forth would be individuals that were not even in the military. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would say change comes from everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's realistic. You know, it's a... Everything. Every, all individuals that, could, you know, that have uh, information that might be productive to the operation of uh, aircraft, weaponry, whatever... They could be a veteran. They can be a person who never served in the, in the military. But it was, it was one way in which people could be patriotic and give back to the country. And so, I, you know, I, you know, I've been in the military in all aspects. I've been a dependent. I've been a brat. I've been active duty, and now I'm a veteran. And I definitely want to give back. And this is one issue. I say this, and then uh, I get off my soapbox and take questions and so forth. The important issue because of this, every active duty member is going to become a veteran. And if the veteran services is all, I mean, the military population is a voluntary service population. We just celebrated uh, Memorial Day on Monday. Our country is protected by people who volunteer, raise their right hand and say, I volunteer to do this. If we lose a certain amount of people that are willing to do that, our country's national defense and security is at risk because who's going to defend us? And if people think people don't want to attack each other, all you got to do is look at what's happening in Ukraine and the Soviet, and not the Soviet Union, but Russia right now. They're attacking these individuals because they feel that they can go. They want to have dominion over them. They want to have authority over them, and they're fighting back. And I'm saying, if you think that can't happen in America, I live here in Washington D.C. and I never thought I'd see anything like January 6th, but I've seen it. So, how we treat veterans is very important because, you know, that's how we recruit. Uh, individuals into the military. Now, I just tell you this, and for my veterans and active duty that's missing, they'll smile at this. The two hardest jobs in the military is a drill sergeant teaching teaching soldiers how to become, teaching civilians how to become soldiers, and recruiting. Recruiting's harder. That's getting the bodies to for the drill sergeants to get to. And you can't recruit. And recruiting is a lot harder today than it was in yesteryear due to the fact that the one thing that a lot of people have in their pocket, which is a cell phone and with Google, you know, the recruiter can tell them, oh, you're going to have this and this and this in life, and they can go ahead and just speak into the phone and they can say, well, they can challenge that because there's information on the, on the World Wide Web and the Internet that says otherwise. So it's an actual national security issue, more so than the debt ceiling because national the, the National Defense Department, the two largest budgets in the government are the Department of Defense and the second largest is Department of Veterans Affairs. Mm-hmm. We're first cousins, no, I would say we're brothers. And mm-hmm. with that, I give it back to you, Dr. Green. Mm-hmm. Oh, Absolutely. 
absolutely, absolutely. Well, that was definitely a whole of information and a lot of it that, um, you know, I didn't know. So I'm, I'm thankful uh, that you are, are sharing it. And I can definitely see your uh, passion in, in this project, Project 22, because that's what it's about. It's about saving lives, you know. I mean, if you one does not save oneself, you know what I'm saying, it's hard for them to save someone else, you know. But at, at the same token, it has to be a antidote to fear. They have to answer because, again, fear is one of those things that cause to uh, self-destruct. That's the only thing that causes a person to self-destruct in some way. Um, our, our massive amounts of responsibility as human beings on this earth is to, uh, you know, reach reach the, the inner court of, of our communities where fear is evidently present. Um, and what I also uh, want to uh, is did you find in your in your skin? I know we're about to go to break here in a minute or so. Uh, did you find in your your research and studies about the severity of mental illness um, in state to state? Or were you kind of focusing on the area that you lived in? Oh no, I'm focusing on the United States, continental United States in general. And um, one thing about okay mental health, and I, we talked about this offline, I, I think that it's stigmatized because the first time, first time, the first thing you think about when you hear about mental health, you think about cognitive function. Otherwise, is the person slow mentally or, you know, are they uh, academically or educationally challenged? So a lot of times individuals are apt or less to even report that they have a mental health issue due to the fact that they don't want to be looked upon as a stigmatized eye, if you will, where I think the next horizon in mental health care is everybody identifies as having this. This isn't this isn't something that I'm speaking to. If you're hearing this with two ears, you have a mental, you, you have a mental health condition, you may not know it. I'm not trying to stigmatize you, but, you know, if you feel sad or you feel happy, you know, you're laughing. that's a mental health condition, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it, this isn't something that is addressing, you know, a distinct population. And if you think that's not the case, just remember something we had in the back window just recently, COVID-19. A lot of people, you know, felt that they had mental health issues of, anxiety, claustrophobia, agoraphobia, and so forth and so on. And, 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 that, and those issues just didn't, you know, go away. You know, they, they're dormant. They come back up. And that's the only thing that's different between someone like like myself. I, I did not – well, getting back to your – going back to your question, Dr. Green, let me be very succinct. I'm going all over the United States, mostly the majority, the major cities, and with that, the fallout will reach across the state, like, I mean, across the country, because a lot of times, like, with affirmative action and so forth and so on, it always comes in a big state like California, like the Bakke v. California decision that basically revolutionized uh, affirmative action. Then it goes from the West Coast to the East Coast, so all over the country, all over the country, just 22 major cities I'm dealing with. 
have an opportunity to transform the whole global society in the next 50 years. 50 years from now, the earth will be populated by a new generation of adults, many of whom are yet unborn. Our mission is to nurture them in childhood with love, guidance, and protection, and to raise them in healthy, happy families. If we impart values of compassion, generosity, and respect for fellow human beings in the next generation of children, they will create a world where people can live together in peace. This is our goal. Be a part of the transformation. Get your copy of the book, The Female Solution. Go to www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. Everything you need, what your body needs, is found in nature. So Susan Essentials doesn't do it any other way. Susan Essentials provides your employees and individuals access to over 20,000 nutritional products. And they are shipped direct to your door. Because Susan Essentials is certified in plant-based healing, we're permitted to offer you the best nutritional supplements on the planet. They're non-GMO and sustainably produced. And we take the guesswork out for you. Let Susan Essentials help you take control of your health today. Do you want to live in a world without war? Join our global peace movement. Heavenly Culture World Peace Restoration of Light transcends culture, religion, ideology, and other boundaries 
to achieve peaceful harmony in the global society. HWPL is committed to bringing world peace and cessation of war through peaceful dialogue between religious groups. I am Director Shin Suk Kim of the HWPL Chicago branch of North America. Join us for our next gathering. Call 773-580-1501 and be a part of the movement for world peace. Email us at chicagohwpl at gmail.com.
that's the reason why the adrenaline is off there really going to prepare us for fight, flight, or freeze. Well, unfortunately, in PTSD, uh, what happens is the brain freezes and it stays in, in a suspenseful moment in time. Um, subconsciously, we are not aware that we are there. Uh, consciously, we only become aware when we feel it. It's not when we think it. It's when we feel it. So the emotions of the threat becomes uh, real. Even though those things are not happening, uh, they become reality to us. So what happens, our senses, our senses, our sight, our touch, our smell, you know, because we have seven senses, not just six, our our very view of that then forward to us. Our, our our forward brain. When I say forward brain, I'm talking to I. I'm talking about your forward uh, executive director. You know, temp, frontal lobe, and um, just from my experience, but not experiencing PTSD, but just really talking and uh, conversing and assisting those to understand fear. Uh, the Part of the brain, uh, which is the right hemisphere, which holds all the emotions of your experiences, then uh, starts to shift, uh, and then the logical side of the brain starts to stand down. Okay, I know that sounds a little weird, but uh, the uh, emotional side of the brain is where the inner child, we call it the inner child emotions. Uh, The inner child emotions, um, they lay dormant until the eyes, Eyes, sight, touch, senses are alerted, alerted through some type of uh, sensory, right, sensory. Um, And then those emotions come forward subconsciously. You are living in the past. That's what we call PTSD. You relive the past, whether it lasts for two minutes to weeks or months. Uh, you're still reliving your past. So when it becomes a factor um, uh, of conformity is when uh, the mind then gets trumped. I call it trumped, which is uh, for the sake of understanding, you have a brain. Just like we have an autoimmune system, we have an auto brain. Our auto brain is our subconscious brain. Your conscious brain is the one that's wide open. You're making decisions. You're looking and you're seeing and, you know, you're hearing and you're smelling. But the auto brain is a involuntary response, which means that, again, I see something that is similar or smell something that's similar to that experience, um, you know, that traumatized experience. And when that happens, the auto brain is just very hard uh, into uh, what they call threat mode, uh, thinking that, oh, you're back there, you're experiencing this, and the conscious is not, you know, now the realities clash together like a big uh, boom, you know what I'm saying? So when they start clashing like that, they immediately start to overload uh, your sensory. And when your sensory scale, you literally start feeling the fear. Now you really think you're in it, right? You really think because they become so surreal to you. Now 
false evidence appearing real has took your reality from you. I have a question. Literally. I have a question based on, on what you've said and, and what, mm-hmm. what Theodore said about uh, when you come out and you want to remove all signs of the military, you know, you grow your beard, you wear the uniform, and yet the job that a lot of veterans end up being drawn to is police work. And I would think that that would be a triggering thing. You're you're back in a uniform, very 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 rigid kind of structure, and you're around a lot of violence. You know, I would I would think that that would probably be the worst job that a veteran would want to have because it puts you back in the combat mode and all the memories. And uh, we had a guest on a couple of years ago. She was a veteran suffering from PTSD, and she was, and she had, you know, been in the area of police work. And she said that it's discouraged for you to seek mental help for PTSD if you're going to go into police work because the impression is that you're not mentally stable. So you might have PTSD, but you can't acknowledge it or get treatment from it, and yet you're in an environment that seems to be very <coughs> triggering. So do you think police work is not a good career for someone coming out of the military, and, and are there some situations that could trigger episodes of a PTSD? May I speak on this? Absolutely. Yes, sir. No, I, I took a pause because uh, I wanted to do that for effect. A lot mm. of, uh, you know, I looked at a lot of Toastmaster presentations and so forth and so on, Kennedy, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King, they used to pause before effect, you know, when they're talking. Let me tell you why police work is actually good for a veteran, not necessarily for a civilian that just comes off the street wanting to be a police officer. i give you a perfect example, and I can speak about this, and I'm going to specifically talk about weapons because I'm a weapons expert. I used to shoot the weapon every day for nine years. A police officer can't say that because they only shoot their weapon probably three or four times a year when they go to the range, if that. That's the reason why a lot of times you'll see individuals in, in <clears throat> situations where it's a him or their, a, a me or him situation where they're engaged in a conflict where they might want to use their sidearm and then they involuntarily fire it. A lot of times firing that firearm, other than the ch- other than the required time they have to go to the range, that's the only other time they fired it or only other time they were ever put in a situation where they had to do that. In the military, we train all the time. Training and doctrine com- command, TRADOC, that's, that's the uh, military command that governs all training in the United States Army. I want to give you an example of something that happened to me personally and, and just let you understand understand this. Father's Day about four years ago, I was jogging at night. It was like 2 o'clock, and I saw a car on the side of the road, and I thought the car was uh, – I thought that people were going to be asking me questions on how to get to someplace. When I came up to the car, I had my earplugs in. I took it out. This kid pulled a gun on me and then started to – start to shoot. There was a water gun, but I was in front of this school, and I kind of like start to run, 
you know, you know, out ducking and running as they teach us in the military. Here's my point. You know, I reported it the next day, and they ended up finding uh, that the individual that pointed the gun, he had did it at about four other individuals. They thought they were doing it for giggles or whatever. The next, I was talking to my psychologist. I talk every every week to a psychologist, you know, in reference to you know claustrophobia and you know and the dearth of other issues. And I'm not afraid afraid to do it. Matter of fact, there's a line of people trying to get counseling now because of COVID-19 because they found out that they had issues that were lie dormant within them. So I'm not ashamed to say it. But anyway, the next day I was jogging, and then I've been jogging ever since. Here's the issue. When I spoke to the mental health professionals about it, they said, Ted, you don't have any issues with someone pulling a gun on you or anything of that nature. Because in the military, we train with, about, with, with that scenario every day. Me getting into an elevator, though, is a big deal because I'm not used to being locked in a vault every day. So a lot of times when you sit there and you see individuals and they're talking about, you know, oh well, he he uh, fired the weapon. He, you know, he, he was in a dangerous dangerous situation, and so on and so forth. Wake up! In the military, we're in a dangerous situation. The whole purpose of the military is to defend a nation by way of war. That's the reason why we have weapons. That's what a weapon is for. That's why I hate, you know, when I hear people talking about weapons and so forth. Yeah, those weapons should be banned. I'm a weapons expert. I had a I had an open invitation. I'm dark skinned black male. The NRA gave me an open membership when I came out of the military just because of my job. And if anybody doesn't realize this, the national spokesperson for the NRA, of which I was recruited for, is a black man. He's a black man. He's a lawyer. If you look at our careers, they almost mirror each other. And and, and and he's speaking, you know, in reference. Only difference is he didn't he didn't his job in the military wasn't one where he was a weapons expert. I say this, and, and another thing I want to say as far as PTSD, and I really want my veterans to hear this. In the military, well, in the veterans world, where you try to get benefits, in other words, you're getting paid for your military experience or military disability, you need to prove three things. The first thing you need to prove, you need to prove that an incident happened in the military that caused your PTSD or anything else. And I'm going to get people off of PTSD, and I'm going to tell you why right now. VA probably doesn't want people to hear this, but I could care less because I want to speak to my veteran brothers and sisters. The second thing you have to have is current, current diagnosis of PTSD or any other condition. And then the third, you got to have what they call a nexus, a link between what happened to you in the military and the current situation that you're in now. With PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, that's one of the conditions that is in this uh, book called the DSM-5, where I think we're on the fifth edition right now. And that book, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or mental disorders. Let me tell you why. And I'm going to tell my brothers and sisters out there, I'm going to speak a little different. The cadence of my voice is going to come. The sergeant suite is going to come out right now. This is why PTSD is something of, a, in the streets, we like to use, use the word a trick bag. Here's why. you got to have specific 
proof that incident happened to you, like let's say a landmine going off or, you know, you got hit with an RPG, you know, uh, RPG holder or something of that nature, rocket propelled grenade or, or anything, you're at the Patriot range and, and something happened to you. We don't record what happened to us in the military. We don't have people there with cameras and so on and so forth. So a lot of times when you claim PTSD, the first thing they want you to do is they want you to prove incident ver- veracity or proof of the incident, and you can't because you're not recording yourself. But this is what I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen. Any condition that's in DSM-5, anxiety disorder, um, depression, they all grade the same. Any disorder is treated the same, so you don't necessarily have to have PTSD. And sometimes you don't want to have PTSD because individuals such as Timothy McVeigh, who was Oklahoma City bomber, John Muhammad, who was the D.C. sniper, all of these individuals suffer from PTSD. And so you don't want to put yourself in that community of individuals who have, who are infamous, not famous, for their military service in the condition that they derive thereof. So, like me, they wanted to say I had PTSD for being inside of the uh, vault. What ended up happening, I couldn't prove it because who's going to be there at a desolate, I was in the most desolate, far-off duty station in the, in the United States Army at the time, Erzurum, Turkey. So, no, and this was not, this was in, 1988, 89, I apologize. I was talking to my older sister, and she sat there, and she says, Teddy, remember when you were in that car accident? And I go, what? In 1988, in Ottawa, Canada, I was in a car accident. I had totally forgot about it. But guess what? All state insurance companies, the largest insurance company in the country, had proof of that accident. And so that's the way I got connected, for service connected for my disability. I got 70% for claustrophobia. Wow. They had to cut me out of the out of the car with what they call this thing, a Jaws for Life or whatever. Yeah. But I had proof of that incident. It was on leave, but I actually had proof of it. And when, and when uh, Dr. Debbie was talking about you know, the parts of your brain that are active, inactive, I, I was just spellbound by that because this is something that was put to the recesses of my mind only when my older sister said, Teddy, you remember that accident? If it wasn't for that, I, would never, I wouldn't be service-connected right now. Wow. But they, that was irrefutable proof. I got service-connected for claustrophobia, and they couldn't, they couldn't deny me. Because I had proof of, I had, I was already suffering from it, so I had the current diagnosis. What I needed was proof in the military, and that was what they call a Category One, almost which it's like the reverse of hurricanes. Category One means the most severe, mm-hmm. and car accidents is considered most severe because you can die in them. And so that's what I, that's what I actually had, and so. If I want, so PTSD, a lot of us have it, but all mental health conditions in the military are the same. If any of my veteran brothers and sisters are listening, please remember that because that's one of the things that the VA is notorious for doing. They'll sit there, you'll say, oh, I have PTSD. You know, you know you did a lot of, you know, uh, 
volatile things in the military that normal people don't do. The first thing they're going to want to do is deny you wow. and keep you for benefits. When we're talking about suicide, and here's the thing, if you're living in the streets and you have a bad condition and you know you live through the condition and then you're, you have paperwork in through the VA and you don't get your conditions verified, and then that's what people kill themselves over because they know they went through a situation, they filed the paperwork, and then they don't get verified for it. They get denied, 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 almost like they're malingering or lying, and that's not the case. Mm. That's one of the reasons why I'm out here doing what I'm doing, because a lot of, and I'm not the only one, and a lot of other advocates, but I say this to the, to the cows come home. PT, PTSD, yes, but they want you to have a marker, and I know this is called Female Solutions. I want to talk about another issue called uh, MST, military sexual trauma, which happens to a lot of ladies and a lot, a lot of ladies, female soldiers in the military. And I'm going to analogize that with what just recently happened with our former president in E.G. Carroll, who just recently was awarded five million dollars for for the former president allegedly assaulting her. One of the things, as a lawyer, I followed that case. One of the things in that case, they didn't have camera proof of it, but they did have other proof of it, and it's called markers. What a marker is is this. If you say that you were, if you're a lady and you say that you were raped in the military and you didn't report it, they're going to say, how, how can you prove it? How can you prove it? You use markers. If you were raped in 1988 and then you were in the military from 85 to 90, from 85 to 88, you were a perfect soldier. But then 88, where you alleged the rape happened by your supervisor, you didn't say anything. But then you start to get what they call Article 15, disciplinary action because you were drunk on duty and things of this nature. That's a marker. Mm. You became rape. That's a marker. So what happens is outside of actual evidence, you have what they call circumstantial evidence, which basically are called markers, and, it, and, it, you know, and another marker could be a letters, letters that you sent home to your mom, oh, I feel bad, I feel like I, I, I'd rather not be here, which in the military is called suicidal ideation. Wow. And a lot of times people are scared to talk about suicidal ideation, but as a lawyer, I want to educate people on this particular act. Saying you have suicidal ideation isn't going to get you what they call Baker Act. Baker Act means you say something to an investigator, to a medical professional, which states like, oh, I feel like killing myself. I feel like killing someone else. They Baker Act you, which means they're going to commit you to a mental institution because you said something which, which could be taken as harming yourself or harming someone else. That's called you're actually con contemplating suicide or what they call homicide. Suicidal ideation is different. It's like sometimes I think I, I don't really, I feel that the world would be better if I wasn't mm -hmm. here. That You're talking about not being here, but you're not talking about the planning of it. It's a difference. Mm -hmm. And, for, and to get 70%, listen better, to get 70%, all you need is suicidal ideation. You don't need to talk about suicide. So a lot of times they'll ask you that one question. They'll say, hey, do you think about killing yourself? No, I didn't think about killing myself, but I thought about not being here. There's a difference. 
One is without planning. The other one talks about active planning, and that's how you get your percentages in the military, and that's the benefits. The benefits at 100%, 100% will get you about $4,000 a month. So if you got somebody living in the street, serve their country honorably, don't have anything to eat, because I'm going to tell you this, and this is no, no, uh, no knock on anybody that says it, because I know most people say it with good meaning. But I'm going to say something that's going to get an amen from a lot of people out there called veterans. Thank you for your service. Can't buy you a cup of coffee at 7-Eleven. So, so I sit here and I say this. What will get you a cup of coffee and what will pay your rent and so forth is that 100%, which will get you $3,750 a month. Mm. for the rest of your life going up as inflation, and then you got educational benefits that you can get. You can get uh, housing benefits and so forth. Your life can actually change, but you need to be able to engage the VA in an educated way, and the VA has this reputation, and I'm not saying they advertise it, but they got this reputation in reference to people, you know, giving you know, applying for benefits in, in the act in the little saying goes, deny, deny, deny till they die. Wow. And, and that is something that I experienced. Not you know, I'm still here, but I I was denied benefits for a period of ten years and they know for a fact that I did what I did and I am who I am. I wanted to you know, like I said, I'm a weapons expert. I'm not, but I say this. When I got in the military, December 1st, 1994, I never touched a weapon since that, since that time frame. I went to college, law school, and been a lawyer ever since. Mm. But at the same point in time, when I go inside a, a confined confinement facilities and so forth, like prisons, jails, and so forth. And I talk, to, I talk to individuals, a lot of them having to have the same skin color as me, unfortunately. Sometimes when I talk to individuals like that, I can't get their attention until I tell them what I used to do. I used to be a weapons expert, and then they used to talk about, oh, well, Mr. Sweet, well, what about this and this and this and this? But let me just tell you this to all the G's and people in the street and the people who want to be tough. The, the thing that you do with a weapon more than anything when you serve in combat is you clean your weapon. You clean your weapon, you clean your weapon, you clean your weapon, you clean your weapon, and you understand what this acronym called SPORTS stands for. S-P-O-R-T-S, SPORTS. You're going to have a person, a black drill sergeant is probably listening. He's smiling. A white four-star general is listening. They're smiling. Sports. Squeeze the trigger. A stoppage happens. Squeeze the trigger. Pull the charging handle to the back. Observe the charging hand. Observe the chamber. Release the, release the charging handle. Tap the forward assist. Squeeze the, rec, squeeze the uh, uh, trigger. S-P-O-R-T-S. What I just said, I just said these things real quick. I didn't mean for civilians to even understand it, but what I'm talking about, people who are in the business of firing a weapon as part of their job should know what I'm talking about, and the guys on the streets, they don't know what I'm talking about. Wow. They're not about that life, but they want to try to be about that life. Mm. And that's, that's when you get people getting killed because they – I had to – 
I was paid to be a weapons expert. I'm not that anymore. Mm. Don't make people tough. It's, it's your job. And I and I give you a perfect example of it. Three weeks ago, I had a panic attack for the first time, a full-blown panic attack where I thought I was having a stroke. My blood pressure was 195 of 114. If you know anything about systolic and diastolic measurement of blood pressure, that's super, super high. My blood pressure is usually about 118 over 80. And I thought I was having a stroke. I had, I had actually talked it up in my mind that I was having a stroke because I say, oh, my right side is twitching, you know. I had put it, I had built it up in my mind to the point that I'm having a stroke. And I, and you know, the, the main reason I, I, the main reason I want to say this, and I, I want to say this, and then I want to say something I want to compliment myself, but I, I say it openly for these particular reasons. It's not a shame to talk about your mental health condition because at the same point in time, I graduated with honors from New Mexico State University, Bachelor's of Criminal Justice, and I graduated from predominantly white law school, Vermont Law School, and I got my JD. So cognitively, I'm okay. I'm at the top, top upper percent. But at the same time, I thought that I was having a stroke but I was actually having a panic attack. They present differently. But the bottom line is, is this. One thing that wasn't fake was my blood pressure was as high as it was, and that could cause aneurysms and things of that nature. But luckily, luckily it did it. And the doctor, when he was talking to me, he was a matter of fact, and he says, you worked yourself up there, soldier. And I was in a VA hospital, which understands me and so on and so forth. So I was in good hands and whatnot. And now I'm not, you know, I used to always fear having a panic attack and fear full-blown, but now I'm not fearing that. I talked to Dr. Debbie about the concept of fear, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm past that. So veterans, if you remember things, three things you need for your claim, get a copy of your military service records, Prove the fact that you had the incident. Get 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 treatment for it now. Have a doctor write a letter, call a nexus letter, and get paid. You know, quit living. You know, quit living. You know, downtrodden and so forth. Live proud. And there's going to come a point in time we're going to get our benefits anyway because that's what I'm advocating for. Because here's another thing, and I hand it back to you, Doctor Deb, because I, I you know because I don't want to be verbose Ooh. here. When we when we join the military, we go in what they call MEPS, MEPS, Military Entrance Processing Statement, and they check you out like a used car. I didn't say a new car. I said a used car. A new car doesn't supposed to have things wrong with it. A used car is supposed to, and they check you out like a used car to make sure they catch everything. But when you come out the military, they'll treat you like you're a new car, mm. and they won't check you at all. Knowing that you're jacked up, mm. knowing they're paying you while you're going out the door. But what they want to do, they want you to play three-card molly. They want you to sit there when you get out of the military. They want you to prove everything that happened to you when they got your own medical, when they got your medical records, and they already know what happened to you. 
they got a training command. They got a thing called TRADOC, Training and Doctrine Command, which they have psychologists, scientists, and so forth. They already know what percentage you are when you walk out the door, but they're saying, I hope this guy, I wonder if he's going to file and get his own benefits. Wow. It's all about and the money. It, and it's a national security issue because I'm telling you, if, if enough of us do not serve this country and protect this country, you got people that are looking at the United States, and we have a lot of enemies, and they will... I'm not trying to say what they will try to do or whatever, but at the same point in time, you better treat your veterans and you better treat your active duty people right because these are the people that are protecting your country. And it's not a game. It's not a game. What happened to me when I was 20 years old affected me when I was 56 years old. I'm 6 feet, 190 pounds. I'm in great physical shape. But at the same point in time, what happened to me had nothing to have to do with my physicality. It had to do with my mental state of something that happened to me a long time ago. And there's nothing about cognitive. It's something that just is a is part of the is part of the process. It's just like uh, CTE and football players. You know, a lot of them take hard knocks and so forth and so on. And then later on in life, you sit there and you can see that they can barely talk. Yeah. Because to the brain. Yeah. the heart knocks to the head cumulatively damage them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We got to take yeah. another break, and we got a caller on the line. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, this is this has been quite educational, and uh, you know, I I got some definite questions about why don't they want to give the veterans their benefits? But you know, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get back. So if you're listening online and want to join this conversation, give us a call, 515-605-9325, and press 1 so we know you have something to say. We've got a caller on the line. We'll get you after the break. And if you're watching us on Facebook and YouTube, write in your comments, and we'll share them with our listening and viewing audience. And we'll be right back after this quick break. So stick and stay. Don't stray away. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. We have an opportunity to transform the whole global society in the next 50 years. 50 years from now, the earth will be populated by a new generation of adults, many of whom are yet unborn. Our mission is to nurture them in childhood with love, guidance, and protection, and to raise them in healthy, happy families. If we impart values of compassion, generosity, and respect for fellow human beings in the next generation of children, they will create a world where people can live together in peace. This is our goal. Be a part of the transformation. Get your copy of the book, The Female Solution. Go to www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. I'm Viata, your Holistic Life Coach. These days, it's more important than ever to work on your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Are you consciously breathing deeply in stressful moments? Do you have a plan or daily routine to maintain balance in your awesome body? Are you struggling to be disciplined in your eating habits? When you partner with me, I'll help you develop a personalized health plan that works for your particular lifestyle. 
You can find out more about me at yourholisticlifecoach.com where you can also review my three-step protocol to guide you to abundant health. That's yourholisticlifecoach.com and I'm Viato. Do you worry about finances, family, health, jobs, relationships? Are you in pain? Do you feel stuck? If you answered yes to any of these questions, help is available. Don't worry, you're not alone. It's part of the human process. You only feel this way because you haven't mastered the voices in your head. No hype, just down-to-earth, solid, workable tools and techniques that you can practice daily. It's really food for the soul, whether you want to learn how not to worry about anything, reverse type 2 diabetes, publish a book, promote your product or service, or just make extra money. To take advantage of the deal of the day, go to zeldaspeaks.com or call 312-409-6619. Mention promo code The Female Solution and get free shipping. That's zeldaspeaks.com or 312-409-6619. Stop worrying today. Visit zeldaspeaks.com. And 
a lot of times he, he will be in them. And even though he, he never parachuted or anything of that nature, but it was just the point of being up that high sometimes that made him uncomfortable. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, he experienced that, and um, it was uh, something that kind of lingered. Uh, he's he's pretty much has gotten over most of it. And, you know, then he had a therapist for a mom kind of helped him to kind of move the, out of those corridors of his mind and stuff like that. But he's like uh, every so often, uh, sometimes if he's, if he has to take a flight and when he goes up into, he'll feel the butterflies and then they kind of sit down a little bit. And um, uh, again, our whole being experiences fear, mind, body, and soul. So that's where the panic attacks come. The body has a conscious, the brain, you know, the body has a conscious, it remembers. And when it remembers, it's just, uh, again, the, the brain actually communicates with the heart, and the heart is what causes the behavior in the body. And all those things uh, definitely kind of each other, and that's when the racing heartbeats come, the heaviness in the chest, feeling numbness, feeling like you can't breathe. Uh, all of those sensations are replicas are of physical fear. You have mental, emotional, and physical fear, and um, all of those actually make you experience it on either mild, moderate, or severe, uh, you know, situations. So I just wanted to kind of explain that if um, when you did go to uh, the doctor, the doctor explained to you about body conscious fear because they just my suggestion panic attack. Uh, and the reason why your blood elevated is because of the body conscious. Mm. Think about it. Because the blood is the unit of the, uh, the you know, to, to life. So it is active and living because it is. It's inside of us. And so when that cortisol and that adrenaline is released in the bloodstream, what it does, it puts us again on alert mode and the brain just gets a shock, right? So think about it. That's what elevation, it doesn't get low. It gets high. high. Mm. And it gets solid. And uh, the goal is to get it back to where it should be. And, you know, there's different techniques and different strategies to also calm the body conscious. And also, so definitely take care of you, sir. Mm. So we can take that. Uh, we can take that caller. Okay, area code three one four six seven seven. Your mic is open. Introduce yourself to our listening and viewing audience and give us your question for our guest, or Dr. Debbie. Green. Nine minutes is Bianchi. Yes, Bianchi, St. Louis. Yeah, war is war is is really an experience that people can't imagine. You know, I look at documentaries back in nineteen forty two and World War Two with the Bataan Death March. Where you had the seventy-six thousand Americans and Filipino prisoners that was forced to march over sixty miles by Japanese soldiers. Over twelve thousand of them died on that march, and those that were living had to carry the bodies of the dead. So it was pretty horrible, and it's something that you should not want to experience. But you always have to be cognizant that it can happen because there are enemy enemy players out there in the world. 
And, you know, you made mention about soldiers going into the police department. I think that's a good thing to have an honorable discharge soldier in the police department because they have underwent training. They have proven discipline and the respect for authority and can do things with a level head. That's a good thing. And as far as weapons concerned, I highly support the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. It's not weapons that kill people. It's people that use weapons in an illegal way to kill and do harm and do things illegally. I got a revolver that I'll put at the foot of my bed with the hammer cock. I wake up in the morning, it haven't went off and shot me in the foot. If I can use that analogy. So uh, I just wanted to put that in and I wish you luck in whatever endeavors that you engaged in. I'm a lifetime member with the NRA. MRA is an advocacy organization just like the NAACP or the ACL that advocates special for people uh, rights that they think that they are being denied or being trampled on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pianki. We appreciate your testimony on that. Uh, just one quick question about that, uh, and I guess my thought, which a lot of other people have, have expressed, that if somebody, even if they're honorably discharged from the military and they've been trained, but they've been trained for combat, they've been trained to uh, address enemy combatants, and I'm just wondering if police work is really the same thing. I mean, you do have a lot of instances where people are committing crimes, breaking laws, endangering life. But in situations where somebody, you know, accidentally runs a stop light or uh, their tail light is out, the fear that citizens have is that somebody who's been trained in the military is always on alert and always reacting as if someone has a weapon. And no. it's a threat. And that's that's why people are wondering, well, why are we getting these situations where people are getting shot for a broken taillight? You know, uh, the, the, the Philander Castile kind of situations where the officer said, well, I don't know why I shot you, but you just shot him just because you said, well, I have a concealed and carry permit. And, you know, why did that trigger the officer to, you know, to, to, to shoot him? So that's that's the thing that people are concerned about is the training preparing people for combat situations that don't really exist every day on the street among civilians, and are they responding in a military situation when this really isn't a military situation? That's the question. May I speak on that? Absolutely. It's the opposite, actually. Police, individuals in the military are trained <clears throat> to handle hostile, in, hostile situations in a calm manner. I'll give you a perfect example. Boxing. A boxer and a fighter. A boxer is somebody who can get punched in the face, but still remembers his combinations, remember his footwork, remember his, his leads, remember his reads, and so forth and so on. A police officer has training one time a year, where a, police, where a military individual has it every day. And if you look up, and if you look at any of these individuals, George Floyd situation, and so forth and so on, you can just name them. The amount of times that a military officer, a military veteran, 
police officer was involved in the altercation was under 5%. So in other words, all these individuals that are shooting black officers, black individuals, minorities, and so forth and so on, those aren't veterans that are doing it. Because remember, veterans are only 7% of the total U.S. population. And then you've got those individuals that go into military, let's say military-type occupations afterwards, let's say police departments or fire departments and so forth and so on. You know, in other words, give you a perfect example. Would you rather have someone from a, that comes out of a civilian, uh, let's say, a regular rural, rural town who's never had somebody in his face yelling at him and so on and so forth, where he has to maintain discipline? Like in the military, what we do, you have a person in your face yelling at you and so forth and so on, putting you under stress and you having to operate under that stress, and you having to make the right decision under that stress. We have that kind of training for years, where you got someone coming out of rural America, the only time he ever had anybody yell at him has been his mother or father, if that, and then he's put in a stressful situation, he's he's acting out of league. I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. David Petraeus, General David Petraeus, he was the individual that led us through Iraq, Afghanistan, the surge, former CIA director, was unceremoniously kicked out of government for a marital affair. But let me tell you something about General David Petraeus. He was in combat for 14 years. The right side of our arm, every six months you have a hash mark. He had hash marks from his elbow to his wrist. Mm. It, was a, it, was, it was remarkable seeing someone like that. In other words, this was a man that lived in combat. But you want to know something? General David Petraeus was never, was never harmed in combat, but in Fort Benning, Georgia, he was shot in the chest during a training accident by a dang E-1 soldier, General Jack Keane, saved his life. These are people who are famous if you ever watch Fox News. But here's my point. Petraeus was Petraeus was shot in his chest and almost died during a training accident, but during combat, he was never touched. So the point I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, anything can happen in training, but you train as you fight. You don't have any... The, the amount of times or altercations that a, a military member, white, black, or any other color, accosting and unceremoniously abusing a civilian is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. It's almost non-existent because these individuals are trained to handle things under stressful situations. And, and another thing, the Bataan Death March. I smiled when I saw that, and you can look it up because Google says it. I did the Bataan Death March three times causing, causing White Sands Missile Range, which is a desert. Mm. All you got to look up is a desert environment. One of our yearly activities is Bataan Death March, and we usually have this stuff to make sure that we never forget what has happened to us beforehand. Wow. So I... To say I did a baton death march, what it is is a 15-mile road march that you use with a rucksack and boots, and you're in your you're in uniform when you're actually doing it. The, you know, and they have yeah. some components of it where you actually will carry individuals. Wow. So 
I'm familiar with that. And then the thing about POWs, there's two acronyms, prisoner of war, and I had POWs in my in my arms room all the time, and I'm a believer in the Second Amendment, and that's called privately owned weapons. That's why when I sit there as an armor, I have two de- – the acronym means two things for me. We have a soldier that has a, has a weapon. Uh, a soldier owns a weapon, like in Fort Benning, Georgia. He's supposed to store it in my arms room, and then he can bring it – he can withdraw it out of my arms room, you know, if he wants to go to the range and shoot it. I'm by no means, I would sound like the biggest hypocrite. I'm a, I'm a believer in the Second Amendment, and the gentleman is talking about his revolver and things of that nature. I agree totally with every bit of that. I'm talking about the weapons that I have to store in my arms room that can shoot 60 rounds in, in about 15 seconds. That's not a weapon that's used for uh, for hunting or things of this nature. That's a weapon that's used for war because war war is this. I have 100 people. Let me just understand the concept of this because it's never been explained before on TV, and I think they do it on purpose. We got 100 people over here. I got 100 people over here. 99 of my people died, and I got one person left. That one person can still kill this 100 because of the capacity of that weapon to shoot rounds off. And me changing magazines, I can kill 100 people with one weapon because the weapon can fire that fast. That's the whole purpose of combat. I just said it in a nutshell. They don't like to say that on TV. The weapons that's in my arms room that are in arms rooms that are in the country right now aren't necessary for protecting yourself in your house via what the Second Amendment to the Constitution says. It's not. Mm. I, 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 I hate to say it. I hate to say it. And I want to get back to something that that Dr. Debbie said about uh, her son in, in, in his claim, and this is all about benefits. Forty feet is the uh, is the, declar- the declaratory height in which they say you would have uh, fear of heights. But if he has a fear of heights right now, he shouldn't be suffering with it. He should be getting paid for it because. The second they allow you to join the military, there's a, there's a doctrine called the presumption of soundness. That means maybe he did have fear heights, maybe he didn't, but they let him in. Ooh. And that's wow. called the presumption of soundness. So when he gets out and he presents any condition that he did not have when he came in or they let him in with, he needs to get compensated for it. Wow. And the main reason why, and I'm going to give you another, the main reason why veterans, they don't want veterans to have all their benefits and so forth. You've heard of the debt ceiling, right? Right. In in which they're saying the government might get shut down because of money and so forth and so on. Well, all these benefits are supposed to go to these veterans and so forth and so on. And it's in in budgets. And it's in budgets, you know. If these monies don't go to these veterans, they go to other they go to other programs and so forth, which is kind of like pet projects of these congressmen and so forth. So, yes. So these monies are supposed to go to us. It's called unclaimed funds, and they know it. But if they don't, they go to other individuals. 
that's what they're trying to do, not pay the veterans so they can spend the money elsewhere. Okay, I'll give you a perfect juxtaposition. If you have taxes, if you owe taxes, it doesn't go away for 10, 20 years. They become an arrearage, and it'll it'll come up with the interest. But if you're owed money, if you don't collect your tax, if you don't collect your uh, earnings in seven years, they go to what they call unclaimed funds, and that's used in different parts of state budgets or federal Mm. budgets. In other words, if you owe money to the government, there's never – uh, there's never uh, statute of limitations, but if you're but if the government owes you money, you better believe there's a statute of limitations. Wow. And then when that statute runs out, that money will be distributed elsewhere. And that's the whole purpose behind you know the, the the veterans. They know that individuals have these incidents. They know that they have they have the records and everything. In other words, you got to request your records when you get out of the military. And then you got to go about putting together your plaque, your packet, what they call fully developed claim, FDC, or you can let the veterans, you can let the veteran organizations like the DFW, the American Legion, and so forth, put your claims in for you. But that's what I do for work. Eleven years ago, I didn't know what I was doing, but I feel like this, and I'm going to say it on this format, I'm one of the best in the world at doing it now as far as getting someone their benefits. So when I hear a case, so forth and so on, I don't say I know I can get the person their benefits because I happen to know the law. Mm. And Dr. Debbie, your son, you know, you know, he he was in a place Africa. Let me tell you the difference between the NFL and we both wear each other's uniforms, but here's the difference. Because you know, if you if you watch the NFL, you see them wearing a lot of military guard military. Uh, uniforms, jackets, and so forth and so on. And us soldiers, we wear their uniforms. What they do in the military, what they do in the NFL, they're playing a game. We're we're real life. There's a lot of cameras in the NFL, but there's no cameras where your son served at Dr. Debbie and where I served at and so forth and so on. And we're paid minority of what they do, but we protect them. Mm -hmm. They don't protect us the last time I checked. Kind of benefits, and, and, and the thing about it is, sometimes veterans are 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 apt to be quiet and say, "Well, you know, I don't think we des- I don't think we deserve it." They don't like to ask for their benefits, but I'm asking on behalf of them, pay them their, their damn money. I was about to use another word in front of damn, but I didn't want to do that. So, <laughs> but the thing is, is that no, we shouldn't be begging for anything. Right. Begging for anything. Right. We got to take a last break, and uh, when we come back, uh, if you're on our switchboard now and have a uh, comment, press one now. We want to give you a chance to ask your question uh, to our guest, Theodore Sweet, or to Dr. Debbie Green. And if you're listening online and want to join this conversation, give us a call, 515-605-9325, and press one to let us know if you have something to say. And if you're watching on our Facebook and YouTube channel, uh, on Soulful Solutions with Dr. Debbie Green. Write your comment in, and we'll share it with our listening and viewing audience. And we'll be right back after this last break, so stick and stay. Don't stray away. We'll be back in a moment, so stay with us. Hey, 
Have you ever dreamed of going to exotic places, meeting fascinating people, enjoying uplifting music, and spending nights in a luxurious hotel? Do you look forward to a relaxing vacation where you can walk along the beach or sit in a quiet park and enjoy the sunset or sunrise? Whether you're flying around the world or driving across the country, we will share travel tips that will help you stay safe while you enjoy the journey. Join me every third Saturday of the month, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Central Standard Time, and move around with Deborah here on the Female Solutions Show. Call in and comment, 515-605-9325, and press 1 to speak. to take charge of your health. I'm Viata, your holistic life coach, and every Friday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, I'm here on The Female Solution to empower you to make choices that will assist your evolution to abundant health. I'm also blogging every Sunday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time at Soul Purpose Healing, where I bring you a spiritual chiropractic adjustment to bring you back into alignment with our Creator's love, compassion, and wisdom. Join me every Friday morning at 8 a.m. and Sunday evening at 8 p.m. for a time of unity, enlightenment, and love vibration. Shalom. Oh, really? 
I mean, I'm talking about, you know, not the only God has given him, but the soul that he walks with. Because the mind is one of those things that if you if you're not presently with then you have lost yourself. And I think that's something uh, you know, that people deal with each and every day. Um, because I know this is my field. I've been in for quite a long time. It's helping people to retain and sustain and maintain the highest self. Because the highest self is the one that's been, you know, downtrodden by life issues, going through different situations, and impacted, such as causing uh, fragmentation, such as brokenness in some area. I mean, we all experience things from day to day, moment to moment. And as I tell my clients and my patients, you have to love to live moment to moment to be a living mind because everything happens so quickly and before you realize that you are lost, like, what do you call it? You lose yourself in transition, you know, by being distracted, by being uh, not consciously and emotionally aware for, for yourself. Um, again, the being needs all of you to watch over it. As I said, self-rescue is real. Um, it is very tentative that we do this on a daily basis, and you know because mental illness has taken a whole nother. Uh, I think definitely in the last uh, just ten years, uh, to be honest with um, you know just looking at the suicidal rate uh, in veterans as well as just in you know civilian life as well. Um, the suicidal is. is uh, suicide is the top ten. Out of the top five, it's right there, uh, between six and seven. It's right there. Um, doesn't matter from the ages of ten years old to hundred. It is forever present. And if someone has asked me, what do you think is suicide? <laughs> well, I would I would tell you. When fear corrodes the mind and over the brain, that's when you no longer think that you have presence on to live. You no longer care about your own uh, sense of being um, just, again, just walking on earth and going through changes in full responsibility because the reality has been taken over by fear. Uh, I want to give these sentiments because it's false evidence up here in real, but I'll give another one as well. It's really two of them. Is that forget everything and rise, forget everything and rise, or forget everything and run. I, t- I will beg the first part, <laughs> forget everything and rise, because if something has you at a lower presence mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you have to ask yourself a question, how long shall I stay there or shall I make my power choice to escape when it is escapable? Because it is. The brain always, always has a way out. It's just the corridor of the brain has been closed, and we hold the keys. We hold the keys by choice. When you make the choice every day, to keep your freedom. Freedom is free, but again, understand the word free. 
just like they don't understand the word peace. Yeah. And it's not that they're ignorant to it, like Mr. Sleep says. It's just that they just don't know. They don't know. Now, I they have... don't know. They're not familiar with it. So yeah. what, do, what do we do with that? <laughs> mm. Now, I have a question about those who get to the point where they don't want to be here. Is it the frustration of not being able to get their benefits or getting giving the runaround? They need help, but yet they, they, they run into roadblocks and the frustration just overwhelms them. Is that what's driving this 22 veterans a day average to commit suicide? I say it's a combination of, of that. If you call the Department of Veterans Affairs, you'll get a strange, not a strange message, but you'll get a message that you don't get with other uh, places that you call, other departments. You'll say, if you're contemplating suicide, please call this number, and they'll give you a telephone number that you're going to call. Ask yourself, why is that? Why is it that when you call other numbers, you don't hear that? You know, if you're contemplating harming yourself or if you need to talk to someone, you know, they'll openly talk about suicide. Mm. If you're hurting yourself or you got a mental health condition, please call this number. You're not calling the hospital. You're not calling, you're calling, you're calling, you know, a veteran's office and they talk, they talk about that because they know that it's not just a concept. They know that it is real. And let me tell you the one reason why your question can be answered and in a way it can be left to theory. It can be answered with failed attempts for suicide, but when a person commits suicide, you don't have them to talk to anymore. Right. Right. You know, and so a lot of times you might sit there and you'll say, well, this veteran died, but at the same point in time, this veteran was in pursuit of their uh, uh, veterans' benefits. I remember, you know, I'm glad they got AI now, but I remember waiting on waiting on uh, when I was getting my GI Bill and also when I was trying to obtain my veterans' benefits, waiting on hold for hours. Oh. I'm not saying that in general. I'm talking about waiting on hold for hours or sometimes waiting on hold and then your call drops and you have to call again. You know, pre-internet, and that can that can get that can give somebody a, a, a push your you know, edge. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a kind of like a, a a loss in you know faith that, that they're going to be done. You know, they're going to be you know vindicated and so forth. You know, uh, if you put in a claim and, and you feel like you have all the elements of the claim and then you get denied. And here's the thing about it. The the common law system of law is adversarial. It's a us versus them, you know, it's adversarial. The VA concept isn't adversarial. They have this one concept in the VA called duty to assist. Mm. It's a mandated it's mandated through the CFR, Code of Federal Regulations, that there's a duty to assist the veteran. It's not supposed to be adversarial. But it's, it's made to be that way, but mm-hmm. it's not. In other words, they're supposed to give the veterans the claim that they so heartfully and 
dutifully earned. But a lot of times it's it's done because it's it's played out in real life where you got to sit there and act like you are in an adversarial environment and 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 it is it's almost like if someone was to say oh is this a discriminatory environment i look at it like this if you have to ask yourself if something is discriminatory or hostile and so forth more than likely there's mm-hmm. enough evidence there to prove that it is that kind of situation you know your mental concept or your mental construct isn't telling you, you know, telling you a lie. It's like when someone say, I didn't mean to offend you. Mm. But you did. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm. And and so, and I think that's kind of like, uh, you know, how I would put it. So so they're, they're not giving the benefits that are rightfully due and earn the veterans because they're hoping to hold on to the money and use it for something else. And so, therefore, veterans are often denied claims that they should be given, and that's really the bottom line of what we're facing here. You know, wrong intentions when it comes to the veterans as opposed to the, you know, the duty to serve. Like most insurance companies, they're trying to not pay the claims. That's, is that what's happening? Right. It's just like the debt ceiling issue. And when you deal with humans, I'm going to speak in the spiritual realm. You're dealing with people and money. And when you deal with people and money together, there's a construct in the Bible called mammon, Mm. M-A-M-M-O-N. And it's what a person will do for money, Mm. what a person will do for money. And if you think that they will not do something ill-willed, just watch an episode of the news on any day of the week, any day of the year, and you'll see good, good meaning, college educated individuals, you know, like a debt ceiling issue. That's just something I can speak on. This isn't something they don't want to pay the bill for something that they already spent the money for. It's that simple. Yeah. They say, oh, well, we want to cut spending. I say, no.
It is real life. Saving lives. Saving this lives. is real life. And I'm in the condition that I'm in because I'm the one that gave the soldiers their weapons. Mm. Wow. A unit armor. Let, let me tell you something. My position, I don't pull CQ. I don't pull duty. I don't pull fire guard. You don't have to know what I'm saying, but people who serve on duty, they understand. They know who the hell I am. And the reason why I don't pull those particular duties is because I'm the one that whenever an alert goes off, the siren goes off, I open the arms room, I open the j locks, and then I start issuing people their weapons. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. We're fighting force when that soldier is married to his weapon. That's when it becomes on. That's when, when just like I said, football, you choose to watch it. But when we go to play, when we go to war, we we exempt football, we exempt everything else. The whole world watches what we do when we play our so to say game. And it's not a game. It's not a game. Where the when we talk about homicide, fratricide and so forth and so on, the military is the only occupation. This is a Jeopardy question. Alex Trebek actually asked it one time. It's the only occupation where you can legally kill someone. Mm. So if you're gangsters, you think you're about that life, and you really want to get out of this and join the military. Mm. Uh, There's a difference between being in the streets. These people will shoot you back. Mm. They don't have a lick of fear in them, mm. unlike a civilian. That's why they say uh, one of the uh, mantras of the street is don't shoot a civilian. You're not a soldier if you're shooting civilians. Mm. You're not. Well, well, one last question I I have uh, for a lot of soldiers who have come back with PTSD, and some of them have had memories where they did have to shoot a civilian. I I remember one case where a man was, uh, and I I, I don't know if it was dead or the storm, I can't remember which, which one it was, but, you know, a woman was, running uh, with her hands up, waving a, a white flag, and, you know, because they had seen so many people with bombs strapped to them and things like that, he shot her. And then later they found out she was not, you know, she didn't have a bomb strapped to her. She really was trying to, you know, surrender and not be shot to death. And he was suffering from mental illness as a result of that memory. So in these wars where uh, a lot of soldiers have had to or felt they had to or were commanded to shoot at civilians, is that a lot of the distress that they bring back with them, the memories of combat situations when, you know, they had to shoot some innocent person, you know, child or whatever, and and, and they have difficulty getting over the memory of that? That's a, that's a very good question, and at first, I was having a hard time finding an answer for it, but in my prior, in my in my current career, I can answer that question. Now, I asked you this question. In the field of law, in a courtroom, lawyers are told what they can say and what they cannot say by the judge in a pre-law conference. And then some lawyers like to like to 
play on the edges and they might say something that's prohibited. And the judge will say, strike that. And then they'll turn to you and the jury and they say, jury, disregard that comment. So let me ask you this question. Can you disregard something that you rightfully heard with your own ears and eyes? No, you're going to remember it anyway. Exactly. So you got so you have to be able to you know you have to deal with it and uh, and I, and at first it was it was hard from you know when I when I sit there and I listen to that question it's hard to, uh, to 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 deal with but at the same point in time he had good intentions think about it where he was at where she was at and so forth and so on he didn't want to be there. He was told to be there. He was, the weapon was in his hands and so forth and so on. You know, this isn't, like I said, it isn't a game. It, it, it's not a game at all. And there's a reason why his weapon was trained on that person and so forth and so on. And unlike the streets, when you shoot someone in the military, it has to be ruled an honorable an honorable action, you know, they, they they have investigations and so on and so forth afterwards um, that either vindicate you or not. That's why you be hearing things like war criminal and so forth and so on, the Geneva Rules of Convention, the Geneva Convention, yeah. you know, so, but I, I just say it in, 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 in that concept, you know, it's, it's nothing that it's nothing that's glamorous. It's, it's nothing glamorous about it. But just like you said, and this is one reason why, and I've never been shut up or been told not to speak because I could speak on it because my life has been about it. When you were talking about that last that last comment, what made that comment such a interesting question or, or eye-opening question it wasn't a soldier looking at a person and saying stop or whatever. It was a soldier with a weapon trained on someone shooting them. I'm the one that gives the person the weapon. Without the weapon, the question loses a lot of its sting. He could have called her a name or whatever. He could have sat there and shouted at her, but he had his weapon trained on her. Yeah. And that's and, 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 and that's what this, this is all about. So sometimes I talk about these school shootings and so forth. And they have, they shouldn't have those weapons. They don't need them. And think about this. For a soldier to get their weapon, they got to come to a person like me. I have to, what they call, issue their weapon. Hmm. They got to either sign for it or they got to get their, give me their weapons card. Think about that. Mm -hmm. They just don't go out and shoot someone. And these are professionally trained men. Yes, yes, they, they got the weapon from somebody. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I know we've got to go. Again, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, yes, yes, we're at the end. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Darrell Sweet, and, you know, hats off to you as always uh, if you want to put your project. And, again, let me know uh, how I can be assistance in service to you because we need you, all of you.
channel. Uh, again, this is Soulful Solutions, and my name is Dr. Debbie Green. Again, um, We've come to the end of our show today, but you can hear every show in the archives at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash the-female-solution. You can also hear today's show on the Female Solution Facebook page. Go to www.facebook.com slash thefemalesolution. Leave your comments about today's show. You can always reach me on my website at www.naimalatif.com. That's www.naimahlatif.com. Watch our TV shows, listen to our radio shows, order our books, and be sure to get your copy of the book, The Female Solution. On behalf of our team of radio hosts, I'd like to thank all of you who participated in today's discussion. And to our global family listening from all around the world, we say thank you. To our family in China, Sheshe, India, Zanyaba, Japan, Alingato, Korea, Kamsanida, Russia, Spasiba, Germany, Danke, Poland, John Kunyon, France, Merci. Spain, gracias, Italy, grazie, Egypt, shukran, Ghana, Medasi, Nigeria, Eshe, South Africa, Ngiabonga, Senegal, Jared, Kenya, Asante, Israel, Toda, Pakistan, Shukriya, Afghanistan, Tashakor, Saudi Arabia, Shukran. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Thank you, and may peace be upon you and the mercy of God and God's blessing.